few weeks ago, Bethel released a video in their series, Rediscover Bethel, dealing with their teaching on basic prophetic ministry. I took time to listen to this video while keeping my Bible open and taking notes. The more I listened, the more I noticed familiar words and phrases mentioned, which originated from a DVD curriculum Chris Vallotton had released several years ago about prophetic ministry. I had taught from this curriculum provided in the former church I attended, the church where I was once identified as a prophet. After watching this video, I was compelled to study it further, search the scriptures referenced, and spend time watching older videos from Chris Vallotton on this subject. The focus of this review is on the teaching itself and is not an assault on the individual. With that being said, the main question I want you to come away asking yourself is, should I be listening to this teaching from Bethel and does it agree with scripture? You just heard an excerpt from my latest blog post featured on Love Subscribe. Hi there, and welcome to the Love Subscribe podcast, where we talk about biblical truths, current topics, and where we grow in loving the Word and loving the one who is the Word, Jesus Christ. I am Dawn Hill, and I am the Love Subscribe. Last week, we began to look at a recent teaching from Rediscover Bethel Prophecy 101. Today, we will discuss the second half, focusing on some core teachings, such as the Office of the Prophet, Training People in Prophecy, and false prophecy, to name a few. There are other things in this section of the video that could be addressed and that I wanted to address, but for time's sake and for the subject matter, we're going to stick strictly to the subject of the prophetic. So let's pick up where we left off last week as they switch gears talking about the gift of prophecy, and now they're going to start talking about the office of the prophet. So the gift of prophecy is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. It's very clearly laid out. Yeah. And it says, and we should all prophesy. Eagerly desire. Yeah. Yeah. Eagerly desire yeah. spiritual gifts, especially that you can prophesy. It goes on to say, and you can all prophesy one by one. Mm-hmm. So everybody that has the Holy Spirit in them mm-hmm. has full access to the gift because the gift is the gift It's a gift from the Holy Spirit. Yeah, okay. So from here, he now goes to Ephesians 4, 7. It's a well-known passage that's used for the apostolic prophetic ministry for the fivefold ministry. And he makes a point from Ephesians 4, 7 that the office of a prophet is a gift from Jesus Christ. He talks about this being something you are and not something you do, highlighting the teaching that it takes a calling, a gifting, and an anointing to have a real ministry. He says the primary gift of the fivefold ministry is to equip the saints with grace according to Ephesians 4-7, which we're going to take a look at Ephesians 4-7 in just a minute and see what the context is and who is giving the grace. Is it the fivefold or is it God? And then he goes on to Romans 12-6, which he says grace gives us gifts, and in Romans they give different kinds of gifts. I'm not sure who the they is there. I kept trying to understand where he was coming from in that. With they give different kinds of gifts, it, it seems like he may be implying that the fivefold is the one that gives the gifts of grace, but I'm not sure. Uh, he then goes on to describe the color of grace. He uses that an analogy as each fivefold has a different color of grace. And there's a reason why he uses that. I'll say in just a second. He goes on to use this, uh, this analogy of the color of grace. Each of these fivefold release a color to the body to equip them for service. And he ties in Ephesians 3.10 to this, referring to the manifold grace of God. And he says that that word manifold means multicolored. And the fivefold gives us grace to do what the fivefold does. The prophet releases grace, for example, to connect people to God like a cell phone to a cell phone tower. This is the analogy he's using. So I'm just transcribing to you what, what is being said in the past, the clip that I just played for you. So the clip I played for you is around the 29 minute, 42 second mark. So you can listen to that if you'd like on your own. I'll have the link posted below for the video. Now I'm just going to say this seems like scriptural gymnastics here. There are some questions this raises and discrepancies with scripture that I see just as a layperson when I'm reading through scripture, studying it, using different reputable resources to look and see what's going on. For example, we're going to start with 1 Corinthians 14.31. I want to read that to you in the context that it's written. We're going to back up a few verses to verse 29. It says, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. 
Now, in context, all may prophesy one by one as what he said, which is the sliver of the verse that is being used to say that everyone in the body of Christ can prophesy. In context, saying that here in Scripture is referencing and is talking to the prophets who are to prophesy in an orderly way during a corporate gathering that Paul is addressing to the Corinthian church. And we know that the Holy Spirit gives the gifts as he wills, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 11, not as we will or choose, and that not all prophesy. We even see in 1 Corinthians 12, 30 through 31, that Paul asks a series of questions. And those series of questions, if you do any studying and digging, you're going to find that there is a Greek word may that goes in the front of each sentence, which means that the answer to those questions is in the negative. It means no. And one of the questions is, are all prophets? The answer is no. So we can know first and foremost, this is talking to prophets here in this context. It says that you can all prophesy one by one is talking to the prophets. It's not talking to the other parts of the congregation. In the context of this sentence, it's talking about the prophets. We must understand that first and foremost, and that we're conveying the full meaning of that rather than just taking out certain parts of it to mean what we want it to mean. And Paul wishing that all would prophesy rather than use tongues is not the same as everyone having the gift of prophecy. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 30 through 31 helps us understand that not all have every spiritual gift. And another important thing too, I know that he makes a note in the video that he doesn't understand why that it's important that in Ephesians 4, 7, that we understand Jesus is the one that gives the fivefold gifts of the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. First Corinthians 12, 4 through 6 is also helpful to us to, to understand that in this capacity. So First Corinthians chapter 12, 4 through 6 says, Now there are a variety of gifts, but of the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but is the same God who empowers them all and every one. I just want to point out here that the Trinity is actually present in this particular passage I just read to you. So this shows the Trinity's involvement in all of this, whether in Romans, the, the grace gifts, or the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, or the gifts of the different leaders in the church in Ephesians 4. These are all given by God himself, and the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all play a role in that, and that's just highlighting that in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6. Going on to Ephesians 4, 7, I want to read that for just a moment so we can see the context of this as well, because context is very important when we're reading the Bible. Ephesians 4, 7 says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Who's giving the grace here? The grace is given by God, not by man. It is unmerited favor, which is, that's what grace is. Grace is unmerited favor to do what he has called us to do. And we see an example of this in Ephesians 3, 7. Paul is speaking to the church at Ephesus, and he says to them, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. And so we know that Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is an apostle of Christ. And in this passage in Ephesians 3, 7, He's talking about the gospel. Now, in the context here, just to note it, he's talking about the mystery of the gospel revealed, which is the gospel coming to the Gentiles. So he was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. He, as an apostle, he's been given the grace by God, not by man. So grace is given by God, not man. And then when we go on to Romans 12, verses 6 through 8, the gifts of grace here are given by God. So I want to turn there real quick. Romans 12, verses 6 through 8 says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service and our serving, the one who serves in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Paul is talking about the gifts of grace. Prior to this, he's talking about there's one body in Christ and there's individual members that are one of another and reminding them that each person has a gift in the body, but it's all still one body. And then having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, again, who gives the grace? It is not man that gives the grace. It is God that gives the grace. And he wants us, to, he, he encourages those to use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. Now, the reference to the level of faith here is referring to the faith or the gospel in right understanding. That is not 
talking about the measure of faith that you have in God as far as doing something in your prophetic gift of being able to speak. This is talking about prophecy according to the level of the faith or the gospel, being able to convey and to teach, to minister in that capacity, what the gospel has to say. The faith would be the better translation is my understanding when I look in several different references and and resources here. Ephesians 3.10 also, this was referenced as the manifold with a manifold grace of God. When I read that passage, Ephesians 3.10, it actually says the manifold wisdom of God in this one particular translation. And this pertains to being diversified or very many sided. So the wisdom of God has many facets. Now I will say this, when you look up a particular word, you're going to find sometimes that it has several different meanings. You'll see this in the Amplified. They'll list uh, the meanings in parentheses after a specific word, all the meanings of it. And that's not how understanding the Bible works because not all of those definitions apply to that one word. It depends on the context with which it was written. So we have to take that into consideration that not all the definitions mean the same for that word because we need to know the context with which that word was used in that passage, in that sentence. When we look here, this is not talking about colors. Now, this is a, a moot point to make, really, because I, I don't know if, why he was using that analogy. At any rate, the fact that the man, it's the manifold wisdom of God is pertaining to being diversified or very many-sided. And again, Ephesians 3.10, in context, is talking about a mystery of the gospel being revealed that had to do with the Gentiles. So that's what it's relating to, is that with the wisdom of God having many facets and in reference to the gospel with uh, the Gentiles being fellow heirs with Christ. All right, so the next topic here deals with the issue to address with people demanding perfection or infallibility in prophetic words. So let's take a listen. I, I run into people who want gifts like spiritual gifts to be perfect, like right from the beginning. Like oh, yeah. You either get them all right, and that that proves that you're right, you know, the Lord's on you, or you're not, or you don't have them. Mm-hmm. But, but we train people. We're like, no, you're going to get it wrong. We take risks. Let's spend, let's spend five minutes just talking about how you can train somebody in spiritual gifts. And then, uh, like, I think we talked about in Timothy, uh, yeah. some verses about training, getting a gift, but actually having to get better at it. Yeah. Speaking of that. This, well, really good. Let me, yeah. let me read you this verse because I, I actually love this verse. Yeah. It, it, actually, it actually sets this whole conversation we're having. If you're not it, watching, that was Chris turning the page. Yeah, in my, my actual Please. Bible that actual I... Actual Bible, not the electronic Bible. No, I read this like every film. <laughs> Um, so Paul's writing to Timothy, and obviously we're picking up in the middle story, yeah. but he writes this, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through the prophetic utterance and the laying on of hands of the presbytery. This is very interesting because now Paul just said, for, people ask the question like, how do, how, do you, how do we get a gift? Just in case you don't know, because he, he didn't say in there where he was preparing to read, he is reading out of 1 Timothy chapter 4. And he picks up with verse 14. This is what he's referencing. So let's continue for a little bit longer. Only God gives me a gift. Yes, he does. But uh, but sometimes through the agency of other people, often leaders. In this case, Timothy evidently received some gifts or a gift, at least yeah. a gift, from the presbytery, which was kind of a prophetic leadership team. They evidently laid hands on him and released a gift to him. So they, they kind of airdropped a gift from their spirit. Mm-hmm. To his spirit. Now, so so first thing is, like, how do I get a gift? Well, often you get a gift by receiving it from other gifted people whom through the Holy Spirit pass from one person to another. Yeah. Which is, that's a, I think that's an interesting dynamic. But the next uh, couple verses are really important. Uh, okay, speaking of the gift, take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, that your progress may be evident to everyone. Mm-hmm. Pay close attention to yourself, that almost sounds selfish, yeah. and to your teaching. Preserve or persevere in these things. For as you do, you will ensure salvation for yourself and both and those who hear you. Well, this, is a, this is really a perfect verse because yeah. we're talking about Timothy has received a gift. First of all, Paul's reminding him that he had received one. Mm-hmm. So my thought is, has it gone dormant? Why, yeah. why, why is Paul even bringing this up yeah. with his spiritual son, Timothy, who, by the way, is actually an apostle? So he- We're going to address that in just a few minutes because I cannot find anywhere in Scripture where it actually says that Timothy was an apostle. And I'm going to give some thoughts on this and just a little bit of, of what I think is going on here. Again, I'm just speculating based on my personal involvement in this type of movement, but I want to give some insight to that and pose a, a question about that it potentially as to why that was said. 
here, Tim, Paul's saying to Timothy, listen, you received a gift. Remember, we were there. We gave you this gift. And I would assume that, and, and the way I see it happen most often, somebody will, a team will lay hands on a person and give them a, a gift, and it will be identified through articulation. It might be, it could even be the gift of courage or the gift mm-hmm. of prophecy or the gift of leadership. And then Paul says, listen, I want you to take pains. Another translation says, I want you to labor painfully with this gift so that everyone can see that you're progressing specifically in this gift God mm-hmm. gave you. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, in school ministry, we often... All right, I'm going to stop right there. They do start going in and talking just a little bit about how in their school of ministry, they believe in impartation. This is a common thing in some of the charismatic, definitely in the hyper-charismatic church, of uh, the, the belief in impartation, that the importance of someone laying hands on you to give you a gift. They reference Romans in that in the beginning, that when Paul is talking to the Romans, that he said he longs to see them, that he may impart a spiritual gift to them, which again, we need to read that in context. But this is what they use for that to do the, the lines, you know, sometimes even in the uh, fire tunnels and such, they believe that there's an impartation and anointing that, that comes in there from different people that are laying their hands on you. Uh, there's a lot there that we could dig into, but for time's sake, I can't go into that. But I'm, I'm going to stick to the text here. And it's very important that we're looking at scripture in context. We're going to take a look at this passage and what we need to understand with First Timothy 4 here, uh, especially in 14 through 16. It helps us if we look back up a little bit and look at what Paul is saying to Timothy. In this chapter, we see that people will depart from the faith due to false teaching. At the beginning of 1 Timothy 4, Paul is laying that groundwork. He sent Timothy to Ephesus to function as a leader, pastor, overseer in order to set sound doctrine there. And he says that in the beginning, telling him that there was a lot of false doctrine that was going on there, false teaching, a lot of pagan rituals going on. Timothy was sent there to help keep the church in order and to address those things and to teach sound doctrine. And people were getting lost in mythology and genealogies and and all in different things that were false teaching. There were false doctrine. And Timothy was there as a trusted son in the faith to Paul to keep the church on the the right track as far as the truth was concerned about the faith. So Paul is reminding Timothy at the beginning of this, that in in chapter 4, people will depart from the faith due to false teaching, but Paul is encouraging Timothy to continue in the words of the faith he has been trained in, as well as good doctrine. We can even see in 2 Timothy that when Paul is talking about his mother and his grandmother, that he was raised up in the faith that even as a young boy, Timothy knew the words of God. He was raised up with the the Old Testament. He knew the scriptures. And so that's the faith that he's acknowledging even in Second Timothy. And this correlates with First Timothy as well. And Paul goes on to instruct him to instruct him to command and to teach these things. He is to devote himself to the public reading of scripture. So we have to back up before verse 14, because if you just start at verse 14 and says, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you, which that's what the presbytery was, was the council of elders. I'm not sure where the belief or the teaching is coming from that supports that it was a prophetic council, that it was a prophetic leadership team. I don't know if that's being read into the text. I'm assuming it is because when I look up as far as in the first century, what the understanding of a council is there, the council of elders, I can't find that. So I'm not sure where that's coming from. In verse 12, it says, let no one, he says, no one despise you. Command and teach these things actually in verse 11. So prior to this, he's reminding Timothy of the the, the call to be a good servant of Jesus Christ, that He's to present the proper words to them, the proper training to them as far as the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed according to uh, verse 6 there. In verse 11, he says, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have. What's the gift he has? He has the gift, it appears in context here, it's a gift of teaching the word and ministering the word. Verse 15, practice these things, immerse yourself in them. Immerse yourself in what? Practice is what? Teaching the word. Immerse yourself in the word so that all may see your progress. 
and keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. In context, this is talking about him teaching the word of God. Some people say they don't know what the gift was that was given to Timothy or acknowledged in Timothy when he received this prophecy and then the elders laid hands on him. But it appears in context when when I'm just reading it again as a layperson, it looks like it's talking about the gift that he has of teaching. He's to devote himself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortations and to teaching. And this gift could be the ability to teach and preach the word of God, as I just said, and the testimony of Jesus. Second Timothy 1, 5 through 6, uh, Paul says here, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Again, that faith he's referring to is the faith, the faith in the gospel. For this reason, I remind you, for that reason, He's reminding Timothy for the reason, what reason? The reason that his family, his grandmother and his mother of their faith. He is reminding him to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Um, there are some references I found that they believe that Paul wrote these letters 15 years after Timothy had this uh, take place with the prophecy over him, the hands being laid on him to confer him into this position of teaching and ministering the word. And so Paul is encouraging him in the faith and reminding him of the gift to minister the word of God effectively to people so that they will not perish and that that he's protecting himself and he's protecting his hearers. So he's he's telling him to be encouraged to stick to the truth of the word of God and to minister it. So with regards to Timothy, there is no record in scripture that Timothy was an apostle. Now, I, I said I was going to come back to this because I thought it was interesting that he inserted that in there that said Timothy was an apostle. I, uh, I looked at resources trying to find this. I, I figured this out. I saw where the Roman Catholic Church acknowledged him as an apostle. Um, the Eastern Orthodox Church acknowledged him as an apostle. But I couldn't find anywhere where it was actually, it, it specifically said that he was conferred or um, sent out as an apostle in the Bible. He was not an apostle of Christ. We know that for certain. And there is a distinction here. Now, there are some people that are listed. And one example is Barnabas that was commissioned as an apostle from the church. That's not the same as an apostle of Christ. The apostle of Christ, which Paul was one of those, and he acknowledges he was the least or last of all, the, of the least of the apostles, the last of all apostles, and one of, of untimely birth. So a lot of people believe that when he says that, that's referring to the fact that he was not there with the other 12 and saw the resurrec- resurrection of Christ, but he did see the resurrected Christ. He saw Jesus Christ because Christ came to him on the road to Damascus in Acts 9. So there's no record in here of Timothy being an apostle. Um, He was not apostle of Christ because there were prerequisites for that in order to be an apostle of Christ. And though there are other apostles mentioned in Scripture, they are sent out by the church. That's the difference. So Timothy seemed to serve as a pastor in Ephesus. He assisted Paul in his missionary trips. He traveled with him to several different places, to Macedonia, to um, Thessalonica, to Berea. And uh, Paul even sent him to certain places in order to minister to converts and to make sure that that the, the gospel was established properly in those places. And then he sent him to Ephesus for a while to minister there. And he was so he was itinerantly serving in other places and he was uh, that needed assistance and he was serving Paul. This does not automatically make him an apostle. So there are missionaries today that some people would say, well, they're an apostle because they're sent or a church planter because they're a sent one because that's what apostle means. But sometimes that can cause confusion, especially when you're dealing with a culture or a belief system that they revere apostles. And when you hear that word apostle to some people, they immediately think that's a person of authority. The insertion of this in here in in saying that Timothy was an apostle, it seems to be a possible attempt in validating the current movement of restoring apostles and prophets, which I have a thought about that I want to share later when we get to talking more about prophets. Because there is the, the teaching in this, it's not the continuation of apostles and prophets. It's actually the teaching that po- apostles and prophets are being restored. That this came about in the 80s and 90s, that the apostle, the, the office of the apostle and prophet was being restored, that it had been lost for hundreds of years in the church. And so now God was restoring it. What I'm going to play for you now is a clip where biblical revelation and their teaching on the difference of the two begins. So let's go there. 
Revelation perceived. I'm okay. talking about prophetic ministry. Okay. In the Old Testament, it's revelation. It was revelation received. Yep. The difference is, in the Old Testament, my spirit was not alive. Yes, right. So yeah. I was spiritually... Now, they're talking about biblical revelation here, as I said, and the difference of the two, which they it may have cut off a little bit, but it said the Old Testament prophecy was revelation perceived, and, Old, and New Testament prophecy is revelation received. Now, he's going to say some things here that I, I really had to spend some time thinking about because what he was saying wasn't making uh, a lot of sense to me, to be honest with you. So I'm going to let you listen and keep going. So when I had an encounter with God from spirit, it was a it, it was an occasion. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I got the word right because I wasn't living with a righteous human spirit. I was living with a bad heart, a bad mind. You know, Isaiah prophesied we were exceedingly wicked. There wasn't one righteous. Yeah. And so I get a word from holy. Just to make a note of that, Isaiah did say that. But let's also acknowledge that that same verse is something that Paul referenced in Romans chapter 3 when he's talking to the Romans. And he's telling them different verses from the Old Testament and quoting Isaiah that no one is righteous, no, not one. So this same idea that he's talking about here of being spiritually dead, it is not just applicable to the Old Testament. This is seen in the New Testament. We see it in Ephesians 2 where Paul talks about, and you were dead in your trespasses, spiritually dead. And I, it's revelation received. Mm-hmm. The other challenge is, is that the people that I'm prophesying over, they also don't have a, 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 their spirit or the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So how are they? So the only way to judge prophecy in the Old Testament was to see if it actually came to pass. Yeah. Yeah. But in the New Testament, it's interesting. First Corinthians 14, I've quoted three or four times already. It says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. Now, the connotation is immediately. Mm-hmm. Right, like, yeah. Like right now. Did the tornado happen or not? That, that's not it. Yeah. No, because, yeah. like, how am I going to just, how am I going to judge a prophecy that's about the future yeah. right now? Well, what we're doing as as prophetic people and as leaders in in this movement, in this spiritual movement, according to Paul, is we're judging source. We're saying, was that an evil spirit? Mm. Was that a human spirit? Drawing attention to yourself or, yeah. Yes. Yep. Was it the Holy Spirit? Now, if it's the Holy Spirit, God cannot lie. So if... If the word is about the future, and I judged it was the Holy Spirit, this was rooted in the Holy Spirit. I don't have to know it's going to come to pass because God can't lie. Therefore, it will come to pass, given you know yeah. circumstances. All right, I'm going to stop with that. So I listened to this this segment multiple times, trying to figure out what he was saying because it was very confusing to me. It seemed like it was getting convoluted in, into what he was saying. And it almost seemed like at the end that there, w- there was an excuse. It was like excusing off false prophecy, which we're going to talk about false prophets here in a few minutes. Um, so a few things prior to this, though, that I want to tell you and that you can go back and listen to. This started about the 46-minute mark for this clip. So you can back up prior to that and listen to some things. Prior to this, they stated that when a person who is teaching mistakenly says the wrong verse or does something wrong, they are not labeled a false teacher. This was in context of not having grace with someone getting a prophecy wrong and having an Old Testament mindset of wanting them stoned. So they mentioned that. They said, you know, now if anybody, people seem to have an Old Testament mindset to where if anybody gets a prophecy wrong that they say, stone them. And I want to say this, those of us who are addressing error in the prophetic movement and saying that there are indeed false prophecies are not calling for stoning. I, I was involved in this movement and thank God I wasn't st- wasn't stoned because of this. There was grace and mercy given to me by God, but I was still in error in those in that movement and thinking that I was speaking on behalf of God because of the things I was taught and not testing them against scripture and not making sure that what I was believing was sound doctrine. And unfortunately, that's that's the problem with deception in any capacity of what you're talking about is that you don't know you're deceived in those. But this was talking about not having grace with those people. And I would say that there is grace because we're just because you're telling you're correcting someone and saying that your prophecy was wrong doesn't mean that you're calling for them to be publicly killed. Now, I want to say also that the call for accountability is not a death sentence. And when you are talking about someone claiming to be a prophet, the essential characteristic of a prophet of God was to predict by direct divine revelation. This test is exclusive to prophets. 
That's what we see in scripture. When we look at Deuteronomy 18, Deuteronomy 13, when we look at God being very upset in Jeremiah 14, Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 13, there are a lot of different passages that can be referenced for this where false prophets are speaking and false prophecies are given and then the test in Deuteronomy to see about a true prophet of God or not. Then that is the essential characteristic of a prophet of God predicting the future foretelling by divine direct revelation. And this test was exclusive to prophets. It was not exclusive to teachers. And yes, false teaching should be called out. And yes, at the same time, there is grace if someone misspeaks a verse. That's, that's an honest mistake. But when someone is teaching, deliberately teaching false doctrine, and they're doing it repetitively, that is something that is being done and perpetuated and consistently done by the same person that, that is false teaching, teaching falsely about the Trinity, teaching falsely that Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, teaching that, you know, t false things about the gospel, which are essential core teachings of Christianity, then that's a huge problem. The Bible tells us how to handle those people with false teachers. 26 of the 27 books in the New Testament have some sort of direction and instruction and warning about false teaching and false prophecy, false teachers and false prophets. So there's a reason for that in the New Testament. And we are to mark and avoid those that are teaching false doctrine, that we are to not listen to them and not be in accordance with their teaching if it if it contradicts scripture, which essentially is a contradicting is a contradiction of what the Holy Spirit would say, because the Holy Spirit helped to carry along those who wrote the scripture, as we see Peter reference that. So based upon scripture, the standard for Old Testament prophets is the same for New Testament. The evidence of this is seen in first using the same word for prophet for both the Old and New Testament prophets in the New Testament. Numerous references to the Old Testament prophets are found in Acts and Romans. In 1 Peter 1, verse 10, we find reference to Old Testament prophets and of their foretelling by revelation. And Peter does not make any delineation between Old Testament and New Testament prophets, and the same term is used for both. So it would seem that we could potentially conclude from that, even just, with, for example, with 1 Peter 1, 10, that when we're not seeing a delineation between the two, that it's the same standard being set for Old and New Testament prophets. As for New Testament prophecy, this seems, when he's saying this about you can't judge the prophecy because uh, because it's the future, and so you have to, you're judging the source that Paul is saying, you're judging the source, this is what Chris is saying here, and the fact that all prophecy is future and it cannot be judged essentially, and so when you judge the source and say, well, this is the Holy Spirit, then it has to be God, and at some point it's going to take place given circumstances. This seems like there's a loophole being created here. If I'm understanding it right, when he, the way he's explaining it, it seems like a loophole is being created here. So you can move the goalpost on dates. You can say whatever you want because when you say that the Holy, when you as a prophet, another prophet judge and say, oh, yeah, the Holy Spirit said that, then we know it's going to come to pass. I don't need to know that it's going to come to pass because the Holy Spirit said it. That seems like it's getting around, again, accountability. I wanted to read to you real quickly from this book. It's a very small excerpt called Satisfied by the Promise of the Spirit. I learned about this book from a minister named Justin Peters that talked about this book, and I've been reading through it, and it's very helpful. It's a very meaty resource, should I, I should say. It has a lot of information in it. But it's an older book I found on thriftbooks.com. In the chapter on edifying gifts, apostle and prophet on page 71, under 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 29 through 32, I wanted to read this to you because this has to do with the context of this verse that that's being referenced here in this particular video clip. It says, In the assembly, prophets are to speak one at a time, and no more than a total of two or three are to speak. A prophet who receives a direct immediate revelation has the priority in speaking over another prophet who is speaking apart from immediate revelation. A revelation is no unusual thing for a prophet. In fact, it is expected. Such revelation is immediate and cannot be merely equated with biblical knowledge. A prophet may receive revelation at some other time and communicate it later to the assembly. However, the one receiving the revelation during the assembly has priority. The other prophets are to discern all utterances by prophets. Since Paul says that the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, no one may claim to be carried away and therefore avoid these restrictions. They go on to discuss here, um, after this clip in the video, they go on to discuss that Bethel has a research and development culture in their ministry. They refer to it as an R&D culture. And they use the analogy of 
uh, the Apple store having a research and development for their products. They believe that this should be the norm where failure is not final and learning how to hear the Holy Spirit and how to discern. Again, I'm going to ask a question that some people may not like me asking. Where are we told to learn in Scripture how to hear the Holy Spirit? Did prophets of God have trouble hearing the Holy Spirit? I know that some people will mention Samuel, but we have to look at the context of the account of Samuel, not to mention the fact that if we use Samuel as an example, then we're breaking the rule from the first session last week under their teaching, which states that if you get your model for prophetic ministry from the Old Testament, then you're missing the beauty of reconciliation. So we would be borrowing from the Old Testament, but I want you to think about that. Where are we told that we have to learn how to hear the Holy Spirit. Does God have a hard time in the, in the word speaking to people? I know that some people have a hard time obeying God in Scripture, but the question is, does God have a problem with people hearing him? If he wanted to say something, do, you know, these are things to think about with this. I mean, these things are said, and it sounds so profound and spiritual and deep, but we need to step back as believers in Christ and think about, okay, practically and biblically, what do, do we find this in Scripture? And the answer is no. We don't find that practice in here. We don't find Paul teaching that. The apostles didn't teach people how to practice hearing the Holy Spirit. They didn't do that. They taught the, the gospel. They taught the Scriptures. They taught them biblical teaching, sound doctrine to go by in order to learn and to understand and to grow in being a follower of Jesus Christ. This next part that uh, is stated to be the research and uh, or the R&D culture, the research and development culture. So there was an interesting point that they talked about here. I I did want to play this because they were talking about this R&D culture and talking about how the disciples had a hard time hearing Jesus at times and such and Um, They talk about how, you know, the two disciples, the sons of thunder, uh, were upset at some people and they wanted to call down fire. And Chris says about that they did not know what spirit they were of. Often had wrong attitudes, you know, bad ministry. You know, Jesus would teach them something they couldn't get it done. You know, and so he would like, how long do I have to be with you? And, you know, uh, where's your faith? And (laughs) if you had a little bit more faith, this would work, you know. So, so, you know, we see that R&D with Jesus, you know. And even in the people he chose, you got got a Judas. Shall I call down fire from heaven on him? No. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And Jesus actually says, you don't know what spirit you're of, you know. Yeah, it's like you're hearing from the spirit realm. You got the the wrong one, you know. Which is. Now, pay attention to what he's getting ready to say about 1 John 4, verse 1. That 1 Corinthians 4, I mean, uh, 1 John 4, you know, uh, beloved, so we're talking to each of us. Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they're from God. Next verse, for many false prophets have went out into the world. What's his point mm-hmm. to uh, that John's making is, hey, beloved, don't become a false prophet by listening to the wrong spirit. Okay. This is all yeah. part of that R&D. Like, yeah, learning to hear the voice of the Lord. And- so I want to ask a quick question because uh, I've read 1 John 4, 1, and I'm sure some of you all that are listening have read 1 John 4, 1. Is that what 1 John 4, 1 is saying? I'm going to be honest with you. This one kind of, it really bothers me that this was actually said because this is, this is misappropriating scripture and it's almost creating this mindset, which depending on what part of the hyper charismatic or charismatic church you're in, there are some people that teach that if you come against the prophetic gifting, the, the apostles and such like that, then you are embracing the antichrist spirit and they will base first John four, one on this. So I don't know if this is why, if the, if he's implying this in this capacity, uh, he may not be, but to say that first John four, one is John saying, Hey, beloved, be sure to test the spirits because you don't want to become a false prophet. That's not what that's saying. John is actually instructing the people to test others who are coming in with false doctrine because in the time of John, he was dealing with people that were Gnostics, that they were denying the deity of Christ. They were denying the incarnation of Christ. They were denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so in the context, historical context of John writing these this letter, he is addressing that and he is trying to give some biblical counsel to believers in Christ even calling them beloved, do not believe. I'm going to read ver, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 here in First John. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. 
This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Why in the world would would John be telling these people if he's saying to them in 1 John 4, 4, he who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Why would he tell them, be sure you don't get another spirit in you so that you become a false prophet? They are from the world, he reminds them. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So I would strongly disagree that this verse is warning those people to not believe that certain spirit so that they they themselves don't become a false prophet. That is not what he's saying there. That is troubling. And I I just want you to, to think about that and keep that in mind. So this leads to talking about false prophets because they make a comment in their video that failure doesn't make you a false prophet. Uh, false prophecy actually does make you a false prophet. And and Old Testament would agree with that. And the New Testament would also support that because there are very few prophets that are mentioned in the New Testament. And the ones that are mentioned, they are not ever mentioned in having error in their prophecy. The This again goes back to the teaching that New Testament prophets are not under the Old Testament standard, according to them, and that the prophecy can be fallible. So Agabus is the go-to example, which I've talked about Agabus before in my podcast. Um, And so he's the go-to example for those that hold to this. But scripture supports that Agabus did not err. And Paul testifies of that. If if you've listened to that podcast I did, I went through a whole explanation of that and a study of that. Uh, Scripture supports that Agabus did not err. Not to mention that he declared, thus says the Holy Spirit. He was speaking just in the same manner as Old Testament prophets did. I find it interesting that in this teaching here in 1 Corinthians 14, 31 through 33, is said to be judging source and the Spirit speaking. Yet Agabus spoke by the Holy Spirit, and those who hold to this teaching will ascribe error to the Holy Spirit. It's essentially what they're doing. So I also question if there is restoration of the prophets for today. I also question if there is restoration of the prophets for today, why are they not restored to their original function? And part of that being a mouthpiece for God who speaks divine revelation from God without error. When you're restoring, if we, if since there's analogies used in this video, I'm going to use an analogy that I thought of. If you have an old car, an old vintage car, an antique car, and it needs work done on it, you wanted to get it back to its original condition. That's called restoration. You're restoring it back to its original condition, as close to the the original state that it was in, that it appeared when it was first manufactured and put out for people to purchase. So if there's a belief that the apostles and prophets are being restored, then why aren't they being restored back to their original function that we see in Scripture? And the answer is we're not seeing that happen. We're seeing um, lesser abilities. We're seeing fallible prophecy. That's a question I, I think it's fair to ask that. And it's something to ponder on. If you're a person listening to this and you believe in the restoration of apostles and prophets, then you have to honestly ask that question. Restoration is in assuming that you're going back to the original state. If you're restoring apostles and prophets, so why aren't they operating in that same function to that same degree in a better covenant, by the way, in a new covenant. Um, especially when the apostles were in the new covenant, and we're talking about people don't want to talk about Old Testament prophets and, and not being fallible. Well, okay. There's no example that you can give in the New Testament of fallible prophets or fallible prophecy. And again, we have to look at why would we want something restored that can't go back to its original state, original function? I came across a clip a clip of Chris talking about false prophets. I won't play it here, but I'll post the link down below. And uh, he bases his teaching on false prophets uh, on in it on Matthew 7, stating that false prophets base their beliefs on pet peeves and they build their house on sand. So he's referencing in Matthew 7, this is, this is approaching near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are the three chapters that go together for the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus has a lot to say to the crowds there. He's giving them instruction. He's giving them the instruction of that there's now looking at the law. There's a heart issue. It's not just doing something, but it can be what's going on within you that's really causing that sinful behavior and such. And he's telling them how to conduct themselves under the the new covenant that's coming. 
And he addresses in Matthew 7, verses 15 through 18, he addresses false prophets. He then goes on to talk about false prophets slash, you could even put in their false disciples that come to him in that day, the day of judgment, saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out devils in your name and do all these things in your name? And, and Jesus says, I never knew you. That is a frightening passage to me, by the way, just to, just to think that Jesus would say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those that would rebel against God, that they wouldn't do what was instructed in the word and believing that their works saved them as opposed to having a right relationship in Christ by, by his saving grace. Um, so he states that false prophets base their belief on pet peeves and build their house on sand. So this is at the end of Matthew 7 that he's talking about with with Jesus talking about those that hear these words that I say and do them. He implies in this video that Jesus is talking about the false prophets, that all these words that he's spoken have been about specifically the false prophets and that they need to build their house on sand, not on rock, and that sand is built on pet peeves. So he's referencing the final part of the Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to take note in that context when you read it, it's Jesus saying anyone who hears these words of mine and does them is in reference to the entire sermon. That's not talking about just that particular reading it in context. It's talking about the entire sermon. He's talking about all these words. What words? All the words he just said to them on the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just the portion about the false prophets and false disciples. And we also heard last week in a clip where he said he knew prophets who had been wrong for over 30 years and that it would be nice if they got... if. 51% right at least, but this did not make them false prophets. So he holds to the belief that a false word does not make you a false prophet. This would seem to contradict scripture. In this current video, there was a short discussion about false prophets in the first half and in the opening video, stating that he has known false prophets in his life, five to be exact. He says five false prophets he's known in his life, and they were all hyper-spiritual and hypersensitive and not wanting to essentially submit. So my question is, is that what the Word of God defines as a false prophet? Someone who's hypersensitive and hyperspiritual doesn't want to submit. They believe that God is telling them every move, when to brush their teeth, how to, where to go to the grocery store, where to, when to use the bathroom, what color of shirt to wear, and hypersensitive. Is that what the Word of God defines as a false prophet? And what does Deuteronomy 13 have to say and Deuteronomy 18 have to say about a false prophet? What does Jeremiah 14 or Jeremiah 23 have to say? What does Ezekiel 13 have to say about false prophets? What about Zechariah 10? The word is to be our standard for understanding what a false prophet is. That's the point of mentioning these scriptures. And people are going to say, well, but that's Old Testament. And I would say, if you like listening to videos from Bethel and specifically on this, then I would say, but they're referencing a lot of the Old Testament as well. So do you take issue with that when they reference the Old Testament? to support their beliefs because the full counsel of scripture is profitable for our instruction and that includes the old testament and lastly they discuss prophetic ministry as finding the gold in the dirt of people's lives tying it again to second corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 through 20 and i know that we read this last week i spent a great deal of time talking about this because they tied it with malachi 4 and we found the discrepancies in that, that it is not tied to the, the spirit of Elijah. It's not tied to the, uh, that Elijah brings reconciliation. This is actually talking about the gospel, that Christ is the one that brings the ministry of reconciliation. And that as believers, we are given that ministry as well because of Jesus Christ and what he did. So I wanted to read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17 through 20 once again, just to refresh your memory, or maybe this is the first time you're listening to this podcast. Verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So these are the, the passage that, that is actually referenced here for their point in saying that prophetic ministry is finding the gold in the dirt of people's lives, and they base it on 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 20. The statement is made that Jesus bought the whole field so he could have a treasure. And Chris mentions this. And what he's doing is he's actually referencing Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, which is actually a parable told by Jesus in which the kingdom of God is the treasure found by a man. And he buries it only to sell all he had so that he could buy the field. 
And this shows the great value in the kingdom of God. This is not, this does not say that Jesus bought the field. This was a man buying the field. And he said, the kingdom is likened to the, the treasure in a field that a man finds. The kingdom of God is the treasure. It is not the things that are in sinful people that is the treasure. It is not us digging through dirt to find the gold in people. And if we do that, then we may find fool's gold because we're going to convince people that there's such greatness in them and that they're so awesome and amazing that they're not going to be aware first and foremost they're a sinner. Why is reconciliation even being mentioned? That word means that there needs to be something reconciled or brought back to the proper way. This is not Jesus buying the field and finding the golden people. This parable is centered upon God and the value of his kingdom. A reference is made to 1 Corinthians 14 again, only this time it is to the unlearned or ungifted and the secrets of the heart are revealed when he is prophesied over. Now I'm using the words that were used in this video. And Chris teaches that secrets can be translated treasures. When he looks up that word, it can be translated as treasures. And the man not knowing the treasures in him and the greatness God has placed in Everyone and the Holy Spirit convicts them of their divine destiny. And again, this is all in reference to 1 Corinthians 14. So the statement is made, this is how we build people. This is how they essentially end the video. And Chris gives an example of when he had seven years of prophetic ministry that he was very harsh with people, that he called out their sins. And he had a line of people that were confronting him that were that had an issue with him in one of the services that uh, that he ended up talking to and it really uh, broke his heart and that he didn't want to do prophetic ministry anymore. And then when he went and reevaluated 1 Corinthians 14, that he realized that he was to find the gold in people and the treasure in people uh, based on that passage. So I want to read that in context real quick. And so again, 1 Corinthians 14 in context, this is Paul setting in order what is to be going on within the church services because there was a lot of disorder going on. And he wanted the Corinthian church to function in a right biblical way. The fact that 2 Corinthians, again, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20, is being used here for the basis of prophetic ministry and finding the golden people is troubling to me. Because 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20 is centered around Christ and his gospel as the ministry of reconciliation. I have yet to hear the the explanation, the mention of the gospel of Jesus Christ in any of this, this is focusing on the prophetic ministry and prophecy and such, we should be understanding it from a biblical standpoint. So I'm, I'm bothered or I'm troubled or concerned at the fact that the gospel's not being presented. If we're going to take a scripture and say, well, this is what it means and that uh, Elijah reconciles families to one another as what was said last week based on this scripture, Elijah is not found in this scripture, in this passage. This is about Jesus Christ. And we're not called, like I said last week, we're not called to be Elijah. We're not called to be like anybody else. We're called to follow Christ. We're called to be like Christ. So why is there a need for reconciliation to God is my question. It is because of sin, not because we are unaware of our greatness and our divine destiny. And second, scripture is being misappropriated, which does not honor the Lord. That's another concern that I have. Whenever we misappropriate scripture and we try to make it mean something it doesn't mean, then we're not honoring God in that. And we need to present the word as what it says and be found students of the word to where we, we want to represent it in context and to honor God in doing that. And third, when reading 1 Corinthians 14, the secrets there pertain to hidden thoughts of the heart, to secret sin. What is the point of saying prior to that, he is convicted by all, he is brought to account by all in 1 Corinthians 14 in that passage. What is he being convicted of? It's not, he's not being convicted that he's not understanding his divine destiny. The Holy Spirit convicts those of sin. He calls them to repent and believe. He's hearing the gospel being presented to him essentially and prophesying in this capacity in 1 Corinthians 14. He's called to account by all. And he falls down and he realized this is the true God here. And essentially in true prophecy like that, that also encourages true believers in Christ because they realize that this is God's work going on here that's bringing the conviction, bringing the accountability, and that that person 
begins to believe in the true gospel. They believe in Jesus Christ. And so this encourages other believers when Paul is talking to them that the true gift of prophecy will glorify God and it's going to encourage them to continue to want to operate in that gift properly so that it does honor God and glorify God. So this is not talking about treasures. And I I looked this up in a, a lexicon trying to find the proper meaning of the word secrets here and treasures was not listed. It was it was a negative connotation, actually, but it's still used in a positive connotation because it's drawing someone to, to Christ. It's bringing salvation to them and that they're honoring and they're acknowledging the true living God. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin and the kingdom of God leads us to repentance, basically. None of us are good. None of us are good. There's no treasure apart from Christ in us. The, we know that from the Old Testament and the New Testament, no one seeks for God. And the wrath of God abides on those who, who reject the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Scripture is clear in this. This is not something that's just being pulled out of thin air. I know that we want to say nice, good things, and we don't want to offend, but the true gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive. It's not a flowery, feel-good type of message in that capacity of going, there, you're awesome, you're amazing. God went bankrupt for you. God did not go bankrupt for you. He does love you. But at the same time, you must acknowledge that as a created being, you have rebelled against God. And that ministry of reconciliation means that you are being brought back into right relationship. And that can only happen through saving faith in Jesus Christ. The message of the gospel is centered upon Christ, not man. And this is the message we are to proclaim. The gospel is good news. And Jesus Christ is the reward. He's the treasure. He's the one to which we are to fix our gaze, not man. So this is going to conclude our look at the this particular video, but I want to close with this. I want to urge you to test all things against Scripture. That's a biblical stance to take. We are to test everything against Scripture. If someone is quoting passages of Scripture, then it is acceptable and expected for us to open our Bibles to look and see what the context is and to ask questions and to make sure that the gospel is being presented first and foremost and that the word of God is being represented properly. If we want to talk about Ephesians 4 and to talk about the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, which I do make a reference to this in the video going, if you have the fivefold ministry in your life, then you're going to benefit from all of them. I would argue that as a believer, if you believe the word of God and you understand that when you open scripture, whether in the Old Testament and you're reading Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you're reading Amos, you're reading Malachi, uh, you're reading in any of the Old Testament, in Psalms, uh, Deuteronomy, any, any area that you're hearing the prophet's minister to you. You're hearing the prophets speak to you because that is the word of God. They're still ministering today. If you open the New Testament and you read the epistles, you read in the Acts of the Apostles, you read the Gospels, of our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ from the four different accounts, and you're reading in Revelation, you're reading in Jude, you're hearing different apostles minister through the word today by the Holy Spirit. And I don't mean that in a necromancy type way. I mean that when you read the, if you believe that this is the word of God and it's the full counsel of scripture and it, that it's, that it is God speaking through these men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit to write, divinely write these words, then you are hearing the apostles and prophets minister to you. And today you're hearing pastors that are carrying on and they're ministering this word, teachers and evangelists ministering the gospel, that they're teaching the Bible in the rightly dividing the word of truth is what the Bible says for a man of God to rightly divide the word of truth. As Paul reminds Timothy of that, you're hearing all this, you're under the fivefold ministry. And to have this this way of saying that we got to restore the apostles and prophets today, otherwise, uh, you know, the ministry is not doing what it's supposed to be doing. I would argue that when we're misappropriating scripture and when we're taking it out of context and we're say, making it say something it doesn't say to make up doctrines that we want to perpetuate, then we are essentially teaching something that's not furthering the gospel. 
that we're furthering something else that's getting away from the gospel. And we've got to get back to the Bible. We keep talking about in our culture, we see how the world is is decaying and falling apart around us and that wickedness is abounding more and more. But we've got to look at the church and go, but there's things going on within the church. I I had Sunday school yesterday at our church, and I love what our, our teacher in the class said at the beginning. We were talking about Jude, and he mentioned about the greatest threat to the church is not uh, outside the church, it's within the church. And we see that over and over again. And I thought that was such, it was such a profound statement that we don't think about a lot of times. We're so concerned about being attacked outwardly and our rights taken away from us. And I understand that that is, that is a valid concern. But what about the, the fact that there's false teaching going on within the church that's not being addressed and it's, there's no concern over it, or it's just, well, we don't need to worry about that. No, we do. We do need to be concerned about it. We need to be concerned about the the eternity the eternity of souls that are believing things that are false doctrine, and we need to be ministering the Bible and ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've got to get back to the Word of God in the proper context, and that's how we grow maturity. That's how, if we're reading the apostles and prophets, we're listening to sound biblical teachers, pastors, and evangelists, then we are going to be brought up in maturity as what Ephesians 4 goes on to say. And I'd like to close with that. I think that's the best way to close is with scripture rather than my own personal thoughts on on things. Ephesians 4, um, after we get uh, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, says these equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I pray that you've heard the words in this and that you're studying this out for yourself and testing it also, and that you are understanding that this is being addressed because of out of concern and love for others and wanting others us as Christians to walk in the truth of the word of God and to test things and make sure that we are doing so, so that we can grow in maturity. Be blessed today by this word. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me on Facebook and on Instagram at lovesickscribe. And if you enjoy reading, feel free to hop on over to lovesickscribe.com and subscribe to my blog. I've enjoyed being with you today, and I look forward to our next time together as we talk about biblical truths, current topics, and we continue to grow together in loving the Word and loving the one who is the Word, Jesus Christ. Blessings to you.